Welcome to the Improve the News podcast for Tuesday, June 13th, 2023, where we separate the spin from the facts. I'm Scott Wallace. And I'm Eric Steiner with a look at today's top stories. Former Italian Prime Minister Silvio Berlusconi dies at aged 86. Four Colombian plane crash children are found alive after 40 days. Saudi Arabia announces $10 billion in Arab nation deals with China. George Soros says he's passing his empire onto his son. The U.S. rejoins UNESCO. Scotland's Nicola Sturgeon is released without charge after being arrested. The U.N. says gender biases haven't changed in a decade. An ex-Samsung executive is accused of stealing trade secrets. J.P. Morgan agrees to a $290 million settlement with Epstein victims. Unabomber Ted Kaczynski is found dead in federal prison. Novak Djokovic wins his record-breaking 23rd Grand Slam title. Our top story, former Italian Prime Minister Berlusconi dies at 86. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Fox News, Al Jazeera, Evening Standard, The Guardian, and CNBC. Former Italian Prime Minister Silvio Berlusconi, who led three governments between 1994 and 2011, has died at the age of 86 at the San Rafael Hospital in Milan. Berlusconi, who had continued to be a senator and leader of the Forza Italia party, had been discharged from the hospital last month after being treated by his personal physician during a multi-day visit. The former prime minister had also been hospitalized with COVID in 2020, describing the period as perhaps the most difficult ordeal of his life. Aides had revealed that he was readmitted to the hospital last Friday for what was described as pre-planned tests. Berlusconi's political career saw repeated scandals, including his acquittal on charges of having paid for sex with an underage girl in 2010, as well as being expelled from the Italian Senate in 2013 following a tax fraud conviction. Berlusconi, also a member of the European Parliament since 2019, was estimated to hold a net worth of approximately $7 billion from ventures including his ownership of the Italian soccer club AC Milan from 1986 to 2017 and the controlling shareholder of Italy's largest commercial broadcaster, Mediaset. Scott, thank you for those facts. Our first spin is a right narrative coming from Sky News. Berlusconi was undoubtedly controversial, but his boastful nature, the Trump before Trumpism, paved the way to the longest combined prime minister career in Italy since World War II. Even as a billionaire with a lavish lifestyle, he gave regular Italians a voice when their establishment politicians were tone deaf. While his personal life wasn't without blemishes, no one can deny his popularity and lasting impact on the Italian polity. And there's a contrasting left narrative spin from The Guardian. While Berlusconi may be gone now, his legacy and revival of right-wing populism can still be witnessed everywhere. Italy's new regime has further shifted the country right, making his years in power comparatively moderate. But his proto-Trumpism must not be forgotten. Unfortunately, it is thanks to Berlusconi that corruption, hypocrisy, and cynical governance have infected modern politics. Want to help us improve the news? Go to improvethenews.org pod and take our quick survey and tell us what you think. And now, back to the news. In our next story, four children have been found alive after 40 days with the Columbia plane crash. And here are the facts as agreed upon by NPR Online News, Al Jazeera, BBC News, Guardian, and CBS. Four indigenous Colombian children aged 13, 9, 4, and 1 who survived 40 days in the Amazon jungle after their plane crashed on May 1st 
have begun giving details about how they survived after they were rescued on Friday. They're expected to spend two weeks in the hospital to continue receiving treatment. Luisa Costa of the National Indigenous Organization of Colombia said the children, whose families hoped their familiarity with the jungle would help them survive, ate seeds, fruits, roots, and plants they identified as fit for consumption based on their upbringing in the Amazon region. According to the children's aunt, they regularly played a survival game where they would set up like little camps, adding that 13-year-old Leslie knew what fruits she can't eat because there are many poisonous fruits in the forest, and she knew how to take care of a baby. They used survival skills learned from their grandmother, a respected elder in the Araraquara indigenous territory, to weather heavy storms and evade both jungle predators and regional armed groups. They were also found with rags on their feet that they used to walk through the forest. After the plane and the bodies of the adults on board, including their mother, were found on May 16th, the Colombian army stepped up its search for the children, sending 150 soldiers with dogs alongside dozens of indigenous volunteers. Helicopters also dropped boxes of food and played a recording of their grandmother urging them to stay in one place. One indigenous man who took part in the search said the children, who were found with two small bags containing clothes, a towel, a flashlight, two cell phones, a music box, and a soda bottle they used to collect water, said they complained of hunger and now they wanted rice pudding and bread. Incredible facts, Eric. We have some narrative spins on this story. Narrative A comes from El Pais. This is a tremendously proud day for the Colombian people, indigenous and non-indigenous alike. Working as a team, the indigenous search volunteers shared their knowledge of the jungle, while the military provided technology and strategic operations aid. The ancestral wisdom utilized by these brave children should be acknowledged, for without it, there likely would have been no survivors. Instead, President Gustavo Petro, the Colombian Armed Forces, and the families of the victims and survivors are reunited with their children and grandchildren. Narrative B comes from CNN. While this rescue is cause for celebration, the dangers of flying over the Amazon region must be addressed. Many of the aircraft used to fly over the jungle are outdated and dangerous, including the one involved in this crash, which had been damaged in a separate crash in 2021. The MeToo region only has one paved landing strip, leaving pilots who often fly with no communication technology left alone to land on the driest patches of land they can find. The Amazon forest deserves more support to prevent events like this from recurring. I'll tell you, we should not take good news like this uh, for granted. It's so, there's a story I remember, uh, Evan Tanner, former UFC champion, got turned around when he was walking near the desert and he just got lost and died. You know, like there, there's no guarantee if you get turned around in the wilderness, they, they're going to see you again. This oh, is a that's huge true. deal. Yeah. Saudi Arabia announces $10 billion deals at a China Arab business summit. Here are the facts as agreed upon by the Saudi Gazette, Yahoo News, Al Arabia, the South China Morning Post, Reuters, and Middle East Eye. Investment deals worth $10 billion were signed between China and Arab countries on the first day of the 10th Arab-China Business Conference, which kicked off in the Saudi capital Riyadh on Sunday, according to the Saudi Ministry of Investment. A deal between Saudi Arabia and Chinese electric car maker Human Horizons to cooperate on vehicle development production, and sales, valued at $5.6 billion, accounts for more than half of the investments, according to the state-run Saudi news agency. While an impending free trade deal between China and Gulf Cooperation Council members also featured at the two-day event, 
Saudi Energy Minister Prince Abdulaziz bin Salman said he would ignore Western concerns about strengthening ties between Riyadh and Beijing. Trade volume between the Arab world and China, the region's largest trading partner, grew to $430 billion in 2022, Saudi Foreign Minister Prince Faisal bin Farhan said on Sunday, with the kingdom accounting for 25% of total trade flows between Beijing and the Arab world. The Arab-China Business Conference, hosted for the first time by Saudi Arabia, aims to strengthen cooperation in areas ranging from trade and technology to clean energy and expand the strategic partnership, including through the Chinese Belt and Road Initiative, or BRI. The event comes days after U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken wrapped up a three-day visit to Saudi Arabia, saying Washington is not asking anyone to choose between the United States and China, while highlighting the benefits of collaborating with the U.S. Those were the facts, and our first spin is a pro-establishment narrative coming from Al Monitor. It would be too simplistic to interpret the Sino-Arab Business Summit as yet another indication that the Arab world is increasingly pivoting toward China at the expense of the U.S. Blinken recently succeeded in putting U.S. ties with Riyadh back on a solid footing, despite China and disagreements over Syria and Russia. And while Saudi-Chinese trade volumes may continue to rise, Saudi investment in the U.S. is increasing. China is emerging as a significant regional player, but Washington is rising to the challenge and will remain an influential actor, including in the security domain. And we have an establishment-critical narrative from China Daily. The PRC Arab business event once again underscores how the region, especially Saudi Arabia, is no longer letting Washington dictate the economic path it should take. The increasing shift away from the U.S. and toward China, in addition to a growing China-Arab trade volume, was recently reflected in the readmission of Syria to the Arab League and the Beijing-brokered rapprochement between Iran and Saudi Arabia. Also, Blinken's Saudi trip could not hide the West's mounting economic woes, and Saudi Arabia is well-advised to seek strategic independence from Washington. And the Metaculous Prediction community gives us a nerd narrative. They say there's a 30% chance that oil exports will account for less than 70% of Saudi Arabian exports in Q1 of 2024. George Soros plans to pass control of his empire to his son. And here are the facts as agreed upon by Reuters, Al Jazeera, BBC News, Associated Press, and Forbes. Billionaire George Soros, a hedge fund manager and philanthropist who's a major supporter of liberal causes, announced through a spokesperson Sunday that he'll be handing control of his foundation and his entire $25 billion empire to his son, Alexander. Previously, the elder Soros, 92, had said he didn't want his family to inherit his Open Society Foundation, or OSF, which does work in 120 countries and provides about $1.5 billion annually to human rights and anti-corruption organizations. But he said in an interview that Alex, who recently became chairman of the OSF, has earned the right to take over. Alex is known for a high-flying lifestyle, reportedly attending celebrity parties in Cannes and the Hamptons and taking humanitarian trips to remote parts of the Amazon. Alex Soros described himself in an interview as more political than his father, adding that he intends to expand his father's liberal aims to include voting and abortion rights as well as gender equality. Over the past several years, George Soros, who is a Holocaust survivor, has been the target of criticism from right-wing commentators and politicians. No shock, there's some political spins on this story. Newsweek brings us the Democratic narrative. By passing control of his interests to Alex, George Soros has made sure that the Open Society Foundation 
will continue to support important causes that preserve democracy, while also focusing on other important human rights issues. If defeating Trump in the next election is a crucial step to protecting democracy in the U.S., then Alex Soros is the right person to oversee messaging and funding. Daily Mail brings us the Republican narrative for this story. If Alex Soros is going to continue his father's vision, America's democracy and civil society are in trouble. The elder Soros' spending led to the installation of woke DAs whose soft-on-crime policies have allowed criminals to take over U.S. cities. This announcement means more government control and Soros family control by proxy if Democrats aren't defeated. Interesting, George Soros's son's name is Alexander, and that conjures up, you know, one of the few times I can feel like we're, you know, passing something down uh, to your son or to your to your progeny uh, worked out. Like Philip of Macedon passed on Greece to Alexander the Great, and that, that worked out. Right. But uh, you don't hear about people passing stuff down too often and, and the son outdoing the, the father. The U.S. rejoins UNESCO after a decades-long dispute. Here are the facts as agreed upon by NBC News, DW, ABC News, Al Jazeera, and The Guardian. UNESCO, the UN agency responsible for culture and science, announced Monday that the U.S. will be rejoining the group and paying more than $600 million in back dues. The U.S. stopped funding the organization in 2011 after Palestine was included as a member state before leaving in 2017. U.S. officials say the move is motivated by a desire to counter China's growing influence in the organization, claiming they're filling the gap left by the U.S. in fields such as artificial intelligence and technological education policy. Before 2011, the U.S. contributed around 22% of UNESCO's total budget. UNESCO's Director General Audrey Azoulé has called the move a historic moment, with the U.S. thanking her for depoliticizing the Middle East debate in the organization. The announcement of UNESCO's Paris headquarters was greeted with applause from world delegations. The U.S. will need approval from UNESCO's 193 member states. China's UNESCO ambassador highlighted the negative impact the U.S. withdrawal had on UNESCO, while the Palestinian delegation did not provide comment. In March, U.S. Undersecretary of State for Management John Bass said that the U.S. can't afford to be absent any longer from UNESCO if it wishes to compete with China on the technology front. The Biden administration is requesting $150 million of the 2024 U.S. budget to go towards paying off the debt to UNESCO. The U.S. has agreed also to pay off its 2023 dues, plus another $10 million towards Holocaust education, preserving Ukrainian cultural heritage, journalist safety, and science and technology education in Africa. Thanks for the facts, Scott. Our first spin is Narrative A, coming from Newsweek. The U.S. has decided to break ranks with Israel and dignify an organization that has demonstrated serious animosity towards it. This corrupt organization is used as a cudgel to denigrate Israel and deny any Jewish connection to the Holy Land through their distortions of history. The U.S. should not support an organization that has a history of delegitimizing Israel. America has left before and perhaps it's time they stay out for good. Narrative B comes from Reuters. UNESCO has done much to clean up its act under the leadership of Audrey Ozile, and diplomats are satisfied that the organization has returned to its original goal of preserving the world's cultural heritage. Without the U.S. involved, there would be no counterweight in the organization against Chinese and anti-Israeli influence, as we all should celebrate a new era of UNESCO. Turning our attention to Scotland as Nicola Surgeon is released without charge. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Guardian, Daily Mail, BBC News, Independent, The Telegraph, and Bloomberg. 
The former Scottish First Minister and Scottish National Party SNP leader Nicola Sturgeon was on Sunday evening released without charge, pending further investigation after being detained and questioned for more than seven hours. The 52-year-old member of the Scottish Parliament, whose arrest is linked to the Operation Branch probe involving SNP finances, maintained her innocence in a statement on Twitter saying she had, quote, committed no offense and calling the current situation a, quote, a shock and deeply distressing. The news follows the arrest of Sturgeon's husband and former chief executive of the SNP, Peter Morrell, who was questioned and subsequently released as part of the Police Scotland's probe in April. The investigation into potential wrongdoing within the SNP's fundraising in July 2021 was launched after a formal complaint was filed by a party activist who claimed that over £666,000 in donations raised since 2017 for a second independence referendum had been misused. Sturgeon, Morrell, and SNP Treasurer Colin Beatty were the three registered officers listed on the front of the party's most recent account submitted to the Electoral Commission, which held £97,000 despite the referendum having never been held. Opinion polls indicate that the Labour Party is gaining support in Scotland at the expense of the SNP ahead of the general election expected next year. The SNP is the third largest party in the UK House of Commons and has represented 48 of Scotland's 59 districts since 2019. The Daily Record brings us the establishment critical narrative by outrageously insisting on continuing the bizarre investigation into Indy Ref 2 donations. Police Scotland is promoting a circus while failing to bring charges against anyone. Once this spurious case is over, the Scottish Parliament must scrutinize Operation Branch and how investigations were handled. Sky News brings us the pro-establishment narrative. Sturgeon and Morell, once the hardline leaders of Scotland's election-winning machine, have fallen from grace and dragged the party into its biggest crisis in decades. It's evident that something suspicious has happened within the SNP especially after a luxury motorhome was seized outside the home of Murrell's mother. And the nerd narrative from Metaculus. There's a 69% chance there will be legal consequences for Peter Morell's involvement in the Scottish National Party's financial irregularities, according to the Metaculus prediction community. What are you going to do, Eric, now they, they uh, towed your motorhome outside of Morell's mother's house? <laughs> a UN report, bias against women hasn't improved over past decades. Here are the facts as agreed upon by The Guardian, Al Jazeera, Voice of America, and Reuters. According to the United Nations Development Program, or UNDP's Gender Social Norms Index, global views on women have not progressed over the last 10 years, with almost 9 out of 10 men and women still holding biases against women. Those with at least one bias dropped from 86.9% to 84.6%. The report, which compared data from 2005 to 2014 and 2017 to 2022 from 80 countries surveyed, found that 50% of people believe men make better political leaders, 40% said men are better business executives, and 25% believe men assaulting their wives is justified. Another 46% said they think men have more of a right to a job, with 28% believing it's more important for men to attend college. This comes as, even in 57 countries where adult women are more educated than men, a 39% income gap remains. Anam Parvez, head of research at Oxfam Great Britain, said the data explains why the world is completely off track in achieving gender equality by 2030. Parvez also stated, in 2021, one in five women were married before they turn 18, 
and 1.7 billion women and girls live on less than $5.50 per day. The report said these prejudices, which were exacerbated by the pandemic, are deeply embedded and influences both men and women to similar degrees, creating hurdles that are manifested in a dismantling of women's rights in many parts of the world. Those were the facts, and our first spin is Narrative A coming from UN Women. Gender inequality isn't just about equal representation in college or the corporate world. It leads to hundreds of millions of women and girls living in an abject poverty and struggling to feed themselves and their children. Such neglect for women has also resulted in unequal access to health care, particularly in the wake of the pandemic. As the global community works toward eradicating hunger and thirst, women must be kept at the forefront of our minds, as they often bear the brunt of the crises faced by billions around the world. Opposing that is this narrative B from Cornerstone On Demand. The gender equality debate is stagnant because both sides define equality differently. Men and women are equal in value, but not the same. In the workplace, for example, women tend to network in smaller, like-minded groups, while men are more likely to branch out with the sole goal of getting ahead. This doesn't mean women should be barred from the workplace, but rather, we should take these decisions into account when analyzing macro-level outcomes. If the world looked at every disparity through this lens, we would have far more substantive conversations and reach more common ground. Metaculous Prediction Community gives us a nerd narrative. They say there's a 36% chance that median wages will be higher for women than for men in the U.S. in the year 2050. An ex-Samsung executive is accused of stealing trade secrets. And here are the facts as agreed upon by Reuters, Associated Press, Korea Herald, and Financial Times. South Korean prosecutors have indicted a former Samsung executive for allegedly stealing computer chip technology to build a rival factory one mile away from a Samsung plant in the city of Xi'an, China. The accused executive is also a former vice president at SK Hynix, the world's second-largest chip manufacturer after Samsung. The unnamed 65-year-old executive is accused of stealing factory blueprints and clean room designs from 2018 and 2019 in his unsuccessful attempt to start a copycat factory. The stolen technology is worth $233 million, according to prosecutors. The accused is alleged to have lured approximately 200 chip experts from Samsung and SK Hynix with promises of better pay before the factory scheme fell through due to funding from Taiwanese investors being withdrawn. Despite this, the accused was still allegedly able to produce a prototype chip based on the stolen technology. Prosecutors have called the scope of the leak quote, incomparable. South Korea faces pressure from China's emergent semiconductor industry and from the U.S., who granted the country a temporary exemption from semiconductor export controls that would have forbidden them from having chip-making equipment in the PRC. Six other individuals have been indicted in connection with this crime. Forty percent of South Korea's semiconductors are exported to China, with President Yoon Suk-yul describes competition in the industry as an all-out war. Analysts estimate that there is only a one- to two-year technological gap between Chinese and South Korean firms. Companies and prosecutors have been cracking down on industrial espionage, with 77 individuals arrested last Sunday in connection with 35 cases of corporate spying. Thanks for those facts, Eric. We have an anti-China narrative from FT. If South Korea wants to get tough on leaks to China, it needs to stop building factories in a country notorious for its industrial espionage problems. 
The South's relentless poaching of technology and talent will only escalate if it continues to expand manufacturing in the Chinese market. Seoul is at risk of losing its technological advantage to the PRC if it does not join the West in tightening its semiconductor trade. Global Times brings us the pro-China narrative. Instead of pointing the finger at China, South Korea would be wise to take a hard look at America's punitive export controls that have forced Chinese firms to target South Korean talent. If America lessened its aggressive and ill-advised export control policy, competition would be much less cutthroat. Seoul cannot afford to begin antagonizing its most important trading partner. JP Morgan agrees to a $290 million settlement with Epstein victims. Here are the facts, as agreed upon by CNN, CNBC, The Guardian, Yahoo Finance, Al Jazeera, and Reuters. JP Morgan Chase, America's largest bank, has reached a tentative agreement to settle a class action lawsuit by victims of Jeffrey Epstein's sexual abuse claiming that the bank enabled its former client's crimes. The reported $290 million settlement came just before a Manhattan U.S. District Court judge ruled that the case could proceed as a class-action lawsuit. While the settlement did not include an admission of liability from the bank, J.P. Morgan publicly stated it regretted its association with the late Epstein. J.P. Morgan released a statement that called out Epstein's so-called monstrous behavior, adding that it believes this settlement is in the best interest of all parties, especially the survivors. The bank also called its association with Epstein a mistake that it regrets. The case ramped up in the preceding weeks when J.P. Morgan CEO Jamie Dimone testified under oath that he did not know much of Epstein until his arrest and didn't discuss Epstein's account with other J.P. Morgan officials. This includes former executive Jess Staley, who is being sued for allegedly concealing information about Epstein. The settled suit was filed last November by an anonymous woman referred to as Jane Doe in the court filings and is one of two lawsuits against J.P. Morgan for its relationship with Epstein. The settlement is still pending the approval of a Manhattan federal judge. J.P. Morgan serviced Epstein from 1998 to 2013, seven years after the sex criminal's 2006 arrest. Last month, Deutsche Bank, where Epstein was a client from 2013 to 2018, agreed to a similar settlement for $75 million. J.P. Morgan still has a pending case with the U.S. Virgin Islands. Scott, thank you for those facts. Our first spin is a pro-establishment narrative coming from New York Times. Hopefully, Monday's agreement is an end to at least part of J.P. Morgan's ongoing lawsuits involving its relationship with Jeffrey Epstein. The bank has publicly admitted it deeply regrets keeping such a monster as a client and has worked to compensate Epstein's victims as best as possible. The entire media circus that has been present since Epstein's 2019 arrest and suicide has done more harm than good, and hopefully this settlement can put Epstein and his terrible crimes in the rearview mirror for J.P. Morgan and many others. Zero Hedge brings us the establishment critical narrative. J.P. Morgan may have settled one of its cases with the victims of Jeffrey Epstein, but there's a lot more under the hood when considering Epstein's relationship with the bank, its former employee Jess Staley, and the sworn testimony of CEO Jamie Damone. J.P. Morgan worked with Epstein for 15 years, many of those years after his first arrest for sex crimes. Now bank executives are claiming to not know Epstein at all. Just like many other wealthy and powerful people, this is just the tip of the iceberg in the Epstein saga. In our next story, the Unabomber Ted Kaczynski has been found dead in federal prison. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Sky News, Associated Press, 
CNN, BBC News, and DW. Theodore Ted Kaczynski, often referred to as the Unabomber, died on Saturday at age 81, reportedly from suicide. Kaczynski admitted to committing 16 bombings between 1978 and 1995, killing three people and injuring 23. As an adolescent and young man, Kaczynski was a gifted student, particularly in mathematics, attending Harvard at age 16 and publishing papers in prestigious academic journals. His promising career, however, abruptly ended in the 1970s with Kaczynski becoming increasingly reclusive. Kaczynski's first attack occurred in 1978, when he sent a mail bomb to a university in Chicago, sparking a nearly two decades long manhunt to apprehend a suspect making untraceable bombs and delivering them to seemingly random targets. The FBI eventually began calling Kaczynski the Unabomber due to his targeting of universities and airlines. In 1979, an altitude-triggered bomb he made went off aboard an American Airlines flight, injuring 12 people due to smoke inhalation. Following an almost two-decade hunt, Kaczynski was finally arrested in 1996 after his brother informed the FBI that Kaczynski's 35,000-word manifesto titled Industrial Society and Its Future, which was published by the Washington Post and the New York Times, matched his brother's tone. While in prison, a psychiatrist diagnosed Kaczynski as a paranoid schizophrenic, a diagnosis he vehemently denied. Narrative A comes from the New York Times. Ted Kaczynski has had an unfortunate cultural impact on the U.S., with many young people espousing support for him on social media in recent years. His deadly campaign was a travesty motivated by a deep desire for revenge. Kaczynski's legacy will live on in infamy. Narrative B comes from the Washington Post. The media has somewhat neglected a key component of the Unabomber's story. The fact that Ted Kaczynski was a subject in the CIA's secretive MKUltra mind control experiments. Harvard psychologist Henry A. Murray ran a number of experiments on Kaczynski that deeply demoralized him, eventually leading to his deadly bombing campaign. And Narrative C comes from The Nation. Ultimately, Kaczynski's campaign of terror should be viewed as a foreshadowing of the wave of domestic terrorism that has affected the U.S. since the 1990s. Though Kaczynski was not Timothy McVeigh, who committed the Oklahoma City bombing, one can see the similarities in the extremists. Though his ideology has become increasingly popular with some in recent years, it should not be forgotten how rotten Kaczynski's worldview truly was. And in the world of sports, Novak Djokovic wins his record 23rd Grand Slam. Here are the facts, as agreed upon by USA Today, Sky News, CNBC, The Guardian, and NPR Online News. Novak Djokovic has become the first male tennis player to win a record-breaking 23 Grand Slam singles titles, beating Norway's Kasper Ruud in straight sets in the French Open final on Sunday. The current world number three also becomes the first man in tennis history to win all four Grand Slams at least three times, a triple career slam. He has so far won a record 10 trophies in the Australian Open, three at the French Open, seven at Wimbledon, and three at the U.S. Open. With his Roland Garros victory on Sunday, Djokovic broke a tie with Rafael Nadal and leveled with Serena Williams. He is expected to equal Margaret Court's all-time record of 24 slam trophies at next month's Wimbledon. Djokovic, currently the oldest Roland Garros singles champion in history at 36 years and 20 days of age, missed the U.S. Open last year because the United States banned those without COVID vaccinations from visiting the country. 
In January 2021, Australia deported the Serbian ahead of the Australian Open, also over his refusal to get vaccinated against COVID. Djokovic, who had arthroscopic surgery on June 2nd, will replace Carlos Alcaraz and return to number one in the ATP rankings on Monday. Djokovic has reportedly spent more weeks at the top spot than any player, man or woman, since the Open era began in 1968. Scott, thank you for the facts of that story. Our first spin is Narrative A coming from Independent Online. Djokovic's achievements aren't a fluke. The legend won 11 of his slam trophies after he turned 30, a relatively late stage in the career of any tennis player, and there is little sign of him slowing down. Love him or hate him, you can't ignore that the Serbian is way ahead of his contemporaries. And Narrative B comes from Metro. Though Novak Djokovic has now surpassed tennis greats Rafael Nadal and Roger Federer by breaking this record, the poor example set by his platforming of anti-vaccination rhetoric has made him a clear outcast in tennis's big three. Regardless of his technical or sporting success, his high-profile, reckless response to COVID will always be more notable. And there's a nerd narrative coming from Metaculous Prediction Community. They say there's a 50% chance that the all-time tennis slam singles record for men will be at least 24 in 2050. Thanks for listening to the Improve the News podcast for Tuesday, June 13th, 2023. Each day we use machine learning to read about 5,000 articles from about 100 newspapers and figure out which ones are about the same stories. For each major story, our editorial team then extracts both the key facts that all articles agree on and the key narratives where the articles differ. For more information on Improve the News, please visit our website, improvethenews.org. You can also download the Improve the News app on the Apple App Store or Google Play. For Scott Wallace, I'm Eric Steiner inviting you to join us next time on Improve the News.